This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. so afraid of pain and people in pain. Hello, it's Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill and you're very welcome to the show. This week, Northern Ireland writer Owen McNamee talks Blue Tango, literary resurrection and the moral responsibility of the writer. You're a writer, you're not a priest. You don't have that kind of moral responsibility. And if you cross the line, which I probably have done on occasions, into things which are impermissible transgressions and intrusions into people's lives, then that's my sin, and I'll answer for it to whatever authority you answer to for your sins. Yeah, well, Alex Higgins, I mean, there was a recurring theme of snooker all through the books, right from Resurrection Man right through the uh, the blue books where they played uh, billiards in, in a place which actually existed, it's only recently disappeared, the Reform Club. The Reform Club is still there, but it's fabulous, almost gothic snooker room they had right up in the eaves of this place where the great and the good played billiards. And that led me into the whole Alex Higgins story. But I've been working on it, working around it for years, and I talked about the idea of the blue tango moment, finding the phrase, finding the tone, finding the texture, the one thing that sparks you off. said something which you catch a glance at the corner of your eye I mean John McGarren said life should be told slant somebody walking past in the rain at a particular gate there's, this, there's something there with Higgins that I just haven't quite got to yet and Joanna Burke talks me through her engrossing if a little gory new book The Story of Pain From Prayer to Painkillers this is a show about symbols and ideas fear and empathy unpleasant histories and the neo-noir but first Owen McNamee and the gruesome architecture of writing real stories. Owen McNamee was born in County Down and is one of Ireland's most intriguing and talented writers. His books are dark, provocative and utterly absorbing. Owen started his unique writing career with a series of award-winning novellas, including The Last of Deeds and Love and History, which was nominated for the Irish Times Erlingus Award for Irish Literature in 1989. In 1994, Owen published his breakthrough book, Resurrection Man, a story which is loosely based on the Shankill Butchers and their random, rootless bloodletting on the streets of Belfast. It's an amazing read and hugely illuminating on the way people conduct and adapt their lives to extreme violence. It's one of those books that really gets in on you. It's monumental. The film version of Resurrection Man, for which he wrote the script, was released in 1998 and threw Owen into the shaky media spotlight. In 2001, Owen released the extremely stylish The Blue Tango, which examined the horrific murder of Justice Lancelot Curran's 19-year-old daughter Patricia Curran in Belfast in 1952 and the slippery case of Ian Hay Gordon. Other notable works include The Ultras and Orchard Blue, which looked at the last hanging on Irish soil of Robert McLadery for the murder of 19-year-old Pearl Gamble near Newry in 1961. Owen has also written the Navigator trilogy for young adults. Well, a few weeks ago, I bumped into Owen at the Hay Festival Kells and had one incredibly stimulating chat. And, as always, Owen was bursting with insights and ideas into all the weird and uncomfortable truths in Irish social and legal history. I asked Owen about his haunting bestseller, The Blue Tango, 
and how he navigates the architecture of real stories. Patricia was a, a proto-feminist, if you like, and one of the things which drew me towards her was it's a figure in fiction, it's not a figure in history of the, the haunted lost girl, if you like. So I don't think of them as being history, but one of the things that draws me into it is the architecture of real stories. And you find that if you follow the architecture of real stories, strange things happen, which if you tried to recreate or imagine this piece of fiction, wouldn't work. But because they actually happen, they have their own strange, lurid, internal architecture. Yeah, and I don't think of them as being history. One of the things which drew me towards these particular stories was I'm interested in noir fiction, noir film, and my theory is, for what it's worth, is that uh, noir is actually Calvinism, and these uh, stories were exported from places like the north of Ireland, that Ulster Scott's ethos was exported to the States, and I'm almost kind of re-exporting it back to the place that it came from. And I know that you said before that the Patricia Curran story would be something that you could get on Mulholland Drive. Of, 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 of noir, determinist, the fact that you know, fate mm. determines what happens to you. And in the end, the classic noir hero, and it generally is a noir hero, uh, shakes his fist at fate mm. and, and goes on, even though there's a hand in the scales and the hand belongs to God. And can you talk to me a little bit about the process and your way about getting close to characters in history and personalities in history? It's not as mechanical a process yeah. as that, if you, if, if you like. Yeah. I mean, with the Blue Tango, which was the start yeah. of the Blue Trilogy, I, I'd known about the story for years since mm. I was a child, in fact, but I couldn't find a way into it. Mm. And in the end, it was the fact that the man who was convicted of Patricia's murder, Ian Hay Gordon, who was convicted of the murder in 1952 because the police told him that they would tell his mother he was gay if he didn't confess to murder, and has conviction overturned in 2000, 40 years afterwards, he said that in his interrogation by Chief Inspector Capstick of Scotland Yard, formerly of the Ghost Squad, which is another sort of interesting mm-hmm. historical detail, that he whistled a tune in the charts at the time called the Blue Tango to keep his spirits up. And for me, that wasn't just the title of the book. It was uh, the feel, the texture, the, the noir ethos of the book. So that brought you in in some way, that resonated with you in some way, that that allowed you to go into the character and go into the story. The two parts of style are mm. quite simply um, what you write about and how you write about it. Mm. I had the story, I knew what to write about, but I didn't know how to write about it. And that noir title, almost mm. kind of smoky backroom mm. feels of Blue mm. Tango, gave me the starting point for the book. And it gave you then the images that were created. Yes, and when you go into the history of it, people refer to, I mean, Morris Hayes, Senator Morris Hayes, mm. who is very interesting taking the whole thing, would see it in terms of the history of Northern Ireland, history of Stormont. I'm far more interested in the ideas of the kind of universal ideas of, of corruption and man's fall, if you like, the fall from grace, rather than trying to create historical templates. And how do you explain these travesties of justice in the 40s and 50s in Northern Ireland? And you had some major cases where the wrong person was taken in and accused and put behind bars. How do you explain all Well, it's quite simply corruption. It's corruption and supremacism. In the final case of of, of the trilogy, which Mm. rather confusingly predates the other two two murders, Mm. the Robert the Painter case, the Robert Taylor case, Mm. the fix was in. A young Protestant man, as Taylor was, was not going to be convicted of the murder of a a respectable Catholic woman, which his victim was, any more than a young white man in in the southern states of America would have been convicted for the murder of of a black woman. A young solicitor from Newry who was outside the trials heard heard the comment from one of the bystanders, good Fenian crop planted in the soil in reference to the victim. So they had to find a fix. They did, and did it with with great efficiency. And your fiction is very crafted. It's almost literary crime fiction. Would you think that's fair to say? Or do you think that is maybe a 
kicking the teeth to other successful crime writers in Ireland and across the world. Division of it into mm. literary and crime mm. fiction is, is invidious. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, I, I, it's only in recent years to my kind of surprise I've been described as a crime writer. Mm. And I feel yeah. as if I was rebooted out of the literary drawing room into the alley and I find that I like the company in the alley better than I do in the literary drawing room. Yeah. And if you take a writer like, say, David Peace or James Elroy mm. to be in, in, in that company, is fine with me. I mean, you, you are the artist, you define your genre, you define mm. um, what it is that you do. The crime thing was almost, it seemed to me in a way, kind of a, a publicist tag in a way. Mm. I certainly wouldn't exclude myself from it. There are too many good writers in, in working in that field, if you like. Do you think the success of Resurrection Man, do you think that and how it was put into a movie, do you think that in some way impacting on how you are perceived by different types of readers or readers of crime fiction? The movie thing's interesting. I mean, Resurrection Man was, was sort of a, a well-received literary novel, if you like, but I, I find that a novel is a contract between the reader and the writer. There are only two people in the room. Mm. When you make a movie, there's you, the reader, or the writer, or the filmmaker, mm. as, as such, and the rest of the world. And it becomes an entirely different category altogether. It was very controversial. It, there was a lot written about it, um, a lot of um, quite nasty things written about it. I always felt at the time that if you're, if those are the kind of people you're annoying, then you're probably doing something right. <laughs> and how big a part does obsession play in writing your stories? You said when you heard Ian Hay Gordon sing Blue Tango when he was in police station, that inspired you in some way but surely there's an area that you go into obsession something about these stories really appeals to you I think to a certain extent the story chooses you I find mm-hmm. that I mean when I wrote 1223 which is a book about the strange death of mm-hmm. Diana Princess of Wales in, in 1997 I picked up a book in a second hand bookshop The Death of a Princess and I wouldn't have bought it if it wasn't a second hand bookshop I had no interest in the subject and then I opened it and I sort of found this grim green mm-hmm. sort of middle European thriller texture to, to the whole thing so I, I, I was drawn into it that way so I mean the, the stories pick you mm-hmm. I find But they pick your interest as well though I think there's an element of of risk in it. I like to work with that age. I like to work with real things and, and, and facts and uh, it gives it an edge to me when I'm working. I mean, it, it's possibly not a sort of character trait that you necessarily um, find attractive in yourself but uh, there is something to it, I think. There's the story is that there, there's a buzz to it when you're writing about real things. And when you say there that it's not a character trait that you like about yourself? It just that you perhaps need to be working out there on the edge mm. I mean, with most of the books, I've had to have been read by libel lawyers, and to a certain extent, I can judge that because I, I studied law, though, though I never mm. practiced, so I have a certain yeah. facility in, in dodging the kind of things yeah. which can get you into trouble. But you're also dealing with real people's lives and people yeah. who are still alive, and you're writing about yeah. them. Are there families, there their grandchildren? Yes, of course. But my take on that is that. And it took me a long time to figure it out to myself that you're a writer, you're not a priest, you don't have that kind of moral responsibility. And if you cross the, the line, which I probably have done on occasions, into things which are impermissible transgressions and intrusions in, into people's lives, then that's my sin. And I'll answer for it to whatever authority you answer to for your sins. Is that not the role of an artist? to push boundaries, to look further into things, to take fresh takes and twist it in some way and craft it in another way and to look at things differently. Exactly. And I would find, I've done this for years and used this technique, if you like, yeah. which which developed out of, because it was the only way I could tell the stories mm. of mixing reality and fiction, that the idea of, of crafting a piece of fiction mm. and making it almost totally imaginary or of taking characters' names and changing them and changing their names and changing their characters that are not identifiable, that seems to me the odder way to go about it mm. rather than doing what, I, what I've been doing. 
And do you think we're maybe a little bit precious about our history then and how history is used or crafted or shaped in works of fiction? I think I think it's, it's more than precious. I remember Morris Hayes reviewed a book called The Altarist, which was about mm-hmm. Robert Narek, but it was also about the covert war in the North. And it was a very strange book to write because the deeper you looked, the less you saw. I was discovering a lot of things, a lot of information as, as I wrote it. But he said at the time that this was the only way, art was the only way that we would find out what went on or find any way of any picking up any thread of, of what actually happened and I thought at the time well that's a cop out because letting those people responsible for what went on off the hook and I realised now he's, a, he's an insider he knew what was happening he could see there was never going to be any truth commission there was never going to be any recovery of truth that evidence would have been destroyed trails were being obliterated It's an interesting take because if you look at how art provides in some ways a neutral space for people to engage on issues. I don't think it should be neutral. But to allow people to talk and to exchange and... Yes, but perhaps I I find that, uh, it's back to what what I said about Mm. if you're annoying all the right people then you're doing something right. Art shouldn't be neutral and I don't think it can be neutral. Is there any particular area that you would maybe feel you can't write about? No, not at all. And uh, I mean, what was the Milan Kandera's struggle of history and the struggle of memory against forgetting? And it's very vivid in, 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 in the North that mm. there, there are two schools of thought that we should erase the past, forget about it, move on. And the other part which says uh, we should delve into it, we should find out what happened. I'd be very much of the delving into it mm. uh, school of thought. I don't think you can leave things of a habit of bobbing to the surface again if you, mm. if, if you don't deal with them. But it's interesting when you say there that art is political, but that comes with a price tag. You know, you can incur a lot of grief by that. You've had fatwas against Salman Rushdie. You've had writers being imprisoned in China. All around the world, you have writers being censored. So surely does that not scare you? Well, I'd be sceptical about uh, how much writers can actually do. But at the same time, I feel particularly in relation to my own work in the North, I have a strong feeling that once something is said, it cannot be unsaid. When I wrote Resurrection Man, my wife, my then girlfriend, sat down and read it over an afternoon, read it in manuscript. When she finished it, she said, brilliant, which is great, very gratifying. And then she said something else. She said, um, they'll never forgive you. I knew then what she meant, and I certainly know now what she meant. Can we talk about the landscape of Northern Ireland and how Northern Ireland has changed? I know you come from a very small town in County Down, but your hometown has changed and Northern Ireland is changing. Well, I'm not sure the town has changed as much as my perception of it has changed. But having said that, it's a fishing town and they brought in, first of all, Poles, Latvians, and laterally, Somalis, Egyptians, Filipinos to crew the boats. And it does change, and certainly how I see the town. One evening I had the kids down at the harbour and we're watching the boats come around the pierhead and this boat drifts around the pierhead and all the crew are Somali guys in yellow oilskins and they're singing and dancing and they're yelling out for people on, on the pier and it felt like something had broken off somebody else's imagination in another country in a far distant place and drifted around the pierhead in Kilkeel and it's about how that transforms and, and I mean that's what I'm trying to write about now. So you, you see this image of these Somalian sailors and that has now ignited something in you to write some short stories has it? It's a, it gives an, an imaginative shift. Mm. I mean, I, I started off writing about the time, my very first piece mm. of serious work, and I've gone back to it, and each time I discover different layers. And I'm not sure if what has actually happened is that it's become this uh, imaginative construct that I've, mm. that I've made for myself. What relation it bears to reality or not, I don't quite know. Every time I drive into Kilkeel, I pass a sign painted on the wall of a garage, and it's been there since I was a child, and it's a time when they would have made car parts by hand, and it said, the painted sign, faded now almost to oblivion, says, handmade wings. I like the idea <laughs> <laughs> going in and having wings made for yourself. <laughs> it was funny when we were talking earlier, you mentioned to me about how you break into stories, where you wait for that divine inspiration to come. And you've been working on one particularly interesting personality for quite some time. Yeah, well, Alex Higgins, I mean, there was a recurring theme of snooker all through the books, right from Resurrection Man right through the uh, the Blue Book. 
Brooks where they played uh, billiards in, in a place which actually existed it's only recently disappeared the Reform Club the Reform Club is still there but it's fabulous almost gothic snooker room they had right up in the eaves of this place where the great and the good played billiards and that led me into the whole Alex Higgins story but I've been working on it working around it for years and I talked about the idea of the blue tango moment finding the phrase finding the tone finding the texture the one thing that sparks you off I'm still waiting for that with Higgins and I'm sure it may be very surprising how you find it yes it's moments it's something which you catch a glance at the corner of your eye I mean John McGarren said life should be told slant somebody walking past in the rain at a particular gate there's, this, there's something there with Higgins that I just haven't quite got to yet And that was best-selling author Owen McNamee. Owen's latest book, Blue as a Night, was published earlier this year by Faber. And I have to say, it's another exceptionally solid read. Coming up next, punishing, pounding, piercing, pinching. We feel it. We fight it. We run from it. But how do we understand it? Joanna Burke discusses her frightening new read, The Story of Pain. Thank you. 
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Okay, let's keep with the theme of blood and guts, but from a very different angle. And look at one incredibly uncomfortable history of pain. Dr. Joanna Burke is Professor of History at Birkbeck College, University of London. She's a prize-winning author of nine books of history, including histories of modern warfare, military medicine, psychology and psychiatry. Among her intimate reads include fear, a cultural history, rape, a history and what it means to be human. Reflections from 1791 to the present. Her latest book, The Story of Pain, From Prayer to Painkillers, is true to form and I have to say, makes her rather disturbing, yet strangely captivating reading. Joanna takes the reader on a compelling journey through 300 years of pain to address some fundamental questions about the experience and nature of pain and how we as societies and as individuals interpret it. And the good news is we're all totally bonkers. What I liked about Joanna's book is the big, juicy, dirty questions she poses. You know, the questions we're all curious about, but are possibly too shy or a little uncomfortable to ask. This is an absorbing, erudite and hugely revealing exploration into humanity and all its misery. And yes, while it's rough in parts, it has to be, as macabre as it is, my book of the summer. Joanna believes physiology itself is profoundly affected by culture and metaphor and that the temperament of the individual, the weather and their personal relationships all affect their experience of pain. Yes, she makes a lot of sense. Now, one of the most interesting and frightening chapters in this book is the role of religion in our understanding and treatment of pain. This is where it gets very hairy, as historically pain was seen as something to be embraced and sent my God, Joanna has great stuff on the language of pain and how doctors judge their patients. But one of the more shocking and revealing insights is why people today, especially minorities, the poor and women, are all under-medicated for pain. Well, I gave Joanna a call over the weekend and asked her, has our understanding of pain changed over time? When I started this book, one of the things I found just really most exciting was how we understand pain today is so different to the way people understood it in the past. And I was really fascinated by that huge shift. In the past, and we're not talking about that long ago, pain was actually something that was almost routine. It was almost welcomed. Pain was given different kinds of meaning to what we give it today. Pain was really regarded as something that ought to be embraced because it was meant to be teaching you something. It was sent by God and there was a message behind it to make you into a better person. And so people responded to pain in very sort of passive ways. They either embraced it as, as something good or they submitted to it. And this is really, I think, a world away from what we do today when the first thing that happens when a person is in pain is they jump for pain medication, you know, they don the armour and they meant to fight it. And that's a really very modern conception of, of pain. So today there is no idea of redemption. It's all about how we solve the problem of our pain, how we mute the problem of our pain, how we medicate for the problems of our pain to prevent us feeling such pain. Yes, absolutely. We don't think that pain has meaning in the same way that it did in the past. It is something that is a complete bad. It's an assault on the very integrity of ourselves. And we desperately search for remedies as soon as, as, soon as possible. 
Now, Joanna, the story of pain from prayer to painkillers covers 200 years of the cultural history of pain. And there's one universal thing in this book is that people seem to have always run away from their pain. The idea that whether people in our lives, friends, our family, our loved ones, how we run away from that suffering, how we avoid pain, how intimidated we are by other people's pain and how uncomfortable pain makes us, not just in our own lives, but how we understand other people's pain. Yeah, I think that's really true. The other thing is that people in pain themselves often seek to mask it from other people, even from their loved ones. So there is this sense that even people in pain try to not inflict pain on other people. I mean, pain is very, very difficult for anyone to talk about. We seem to kind of lack a language to speak about our physical suffering. And part of that is because by speaking about pain, we risk inflicting it upon loved ones. So, for example, I remember reading this memoir written by a dying woman in the early 19th century and you know she's in great pain and she's talking to her sister about it and she noticed that her sister begins crying and she says but you know I'm really sorry I'm making you cry by talking about it and she swears to herself not to do that again. Shortly after the scene her mother comes in and asks her well how are you Rachel and Rachel simply says I'm okay. That's very interesting isn't it? Yeah, it's because you know, she didn't want to inflict pain on, on her, her mother. And I think this is really, really important that we do have to understand that people in pain do seek to communicate what they are suffering. But sometimes that actually results in inflicting pain on other people. And maybe serving out or dishing out a lesson. Do you think, Joanna, that different cultures, they empathise differently? So, for example, typical scenario of an Irish or English person or somebody from Europe, how they empathise as compared to somebody from, let's say, India or somebody from South America or Africa? I think that in all of these things, there are certain unspoken rules of comportment, if you like, how you're supposed to comport yourself in these situations. And these definitely do differ widely across countries, very, very different in Ireland to the way it would be in Nigeria, for example. These are sort of rules that you learn right from infancy, right from the moment of birth. You know, you were taught that some cuts are going to be kissed better and some bruises are just going to be ignored. You're taught how you're supposed to respond to pain and how you're supposed to respond to other people's pain. You're taught all of these kinds of rules and so they do differ by culture. Now your book, Joanna, is a very engrossing read. Some of the stories you have in it are quite disturbing, but they're also quite fascinating. It's a strange space to be in. One of the stories in your book that particularly jumped out to me was a wartime amputation in the 19th century and how this unfortunate man had to knock back loads of wine and just sit and grim as his leg was sawed off. And the description of it is very revealing on how the culture of the time of how a man was supposed to cope with the pain or deal with the pain and what was seen as heroic or not or courage or not. Can you talk me through that? Because it's very interesting and it's of huge contrast to how maybe we look at the present situation in terms of clinical environments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really hard, I think, for many of us to sort of imagine how it was prior to anaesthetics. Prior to the 1840s, people were having major operations without any form of anaesthetic. If they were lucky, they might get a little bit of wine or a little bit of whiskey or maybe laudium if they're wealthy. But generally, they were supposed to grin and bear it. And in the book, as you say, I've got lots of um, very vivid accounts of sufferers themselves talking about how they coped with this. And 
And particularly in wartime, men who are wounded are supposed to respond in very stoical ways. Crying out is a real no-no when these things are happening. And of course, some people just can't bear it. So there are awful accounts of you know, senior officers, for example, who during leg amputations, they can't stop themselves from screaming. And afterwards, you hear about them going around to all the doctors and everyone present apologizing for not being a man, not fulfilling the correct function. There's also um, actually quite a funny story on the First World War, where inside this ward, people are having all these major operations, and one young soldier, a private, starts crying while they um, are fixing his wounds. And the guy in the next bed sort of leans over and says, shut up, shut up, old man, think of the regiment. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are rules that you're supposed to be, be following here. And basically, people did, by and large, follow them. And if they did not follow them, they were unable to restrain themselves. Then they apologized, and it was considered a really big deal and a real failure of their manhood. But the interesting thing there is, Joanna, that women today are encouraged to think of the regiment in terms of birthing scenarios, that when they complain of pain and the anguish and the anxiety in a labour situation, that they have to be stoical. And there's a whole debate on should women take pain medication or not? The idea that they can just stick and bear it, you know, dealing with that pain and not talking about that pain, because that's part of the expectation about bringing a child into the world. And that's what you have to do. And perceived as no, no in actually going, this is absolute agony. I think, I mean, you're completely right. Childbirth, I think, is the female equivalent of the wartime injuries. Some women don't want pain relief in childbirth, and that's fantastic. Some people actually need a lot, and that is, that is also really important that we acknowledge this, because what I find really quite remarkable is that as of the 1840s, we basically had efficient, effective pain relief for most childbirth pains. And yet, right up until the 1960s and 70s, women are routinely denied it if they want it. Some women don't want it, that's great, but they routinely denied it by physicians, by obstetricians. And there's this notion that it's somehow natural and therefore you're supposed to bear it. It creates character. There's big debates, particularly in the 1940s, but you still hear it today, that somehow mother love depends on the extreme pain in labor. I mean, I think there's another side to this argument, of course, and that is that well up until the 1960s, it was widely believed that certain women, in fact, did not feel any pain or very little pain in childbirth. It was widely believed, for example, that so-called primitive women didn't feel pain in childbirth and that pain in childbirth is somehow a civilized affliction. It's something that women of the higher classes experience. And these arguments really still remain with us, this idea also that women are supposed to grin and bear it. And one of the startling aspects in the book is how minorities, how poorer communities and also women have been consistently under-medicated for pain. There's terrific stuff on Vietnamese women. You have great research on the Hispanic community and how they were under-medicated. Yet men in the same situations would have got better pain relief. Yeah, absolutely. There's some really strong prejudices against certain groups of people that lead to the fact that they don't get sufficient pain medication. And for these groups, and you're right to mention minority groups, poorer people and women, for these groups, it's a catch-22 situation. On the one hand, if they complain of pain, then they're being hysterical or they're exaggerating or they're malingering and therefore they shouldn't get 
pain relief. But of course, if they don't complain of pain and act stoical, then they don't really feel it. They're really insensitive to pain and therefore you don't need to give them pain relief. So you can't win however you respond. And going back to this thing about childbirth, right in the 1980s, a leading anesthetist made the comment that poor women shouldn't expect pain relief in childbirth. After all, as he said, poor people can't expect to eat in fine French restaurants. So why should they require the Cadillac of anesthesia when giving birth. So these prejudices really deepen our society and long-standing. Now, one of the very revealing aspects of your book is how the role of a doctor and a doctor's empathy or a surgeon's empathy has changed since the 18th century. You mark 200 years of it and the role of the doctor and what's seen as the enlightened, compassionate doctor now as to the bedside manner of earlier days. In the 18th and 19th century, when you don't have sophisticated medical tests or stethoscopes or chemical tests and neurological tests, basically what a physician had to do in order to diagnose the problem of pain in a patient was he, and it was always a he, he had to spend a lot of time with the patient talking through their whole life, everything that was happening in their lives, not only where it hurt, but what their diet was, what their relationships were with their family or friends or lovers or whatever. And so physicians actually spent quite a lot of time talking to their patients and getting a a sense of the whole person. When you get the invention of chemical testing, those sorts of things, what you get is physicians thinking, well, actually, spending time listening to the stories of pain patients is actually a waste of their time. And it's so much easier, so much quicker, so much more accurate to simply get the test done and then move on from there. So what we see progressively as this time goes forward to the present is increasingly physicians and and others are closing down speech in their patients, getting the test done. They are basically language patient stories, descriptions of pain become redundant. Indeed, they even say that patient stories of their pain actually are deceptive. So they actually don't want to hear patients talk until what we have today, of course, is the most common thing is how bad is your pain? One to 10. That's about it. (laughs) Or you have your brain scans to test how bad pain is. So this closing down of language is really very, very important, very significant. And how relevant is the McGill Pain Questionnaire today? Or is it now redundant? The McGill Pain Questionnaire is still used today. It can be very, very useful for physicians. One of the really interesting things about it, however, is just how difficult it has proven to translate into other languages. That pain language, the words we use to talk about pain, are actually quite culturally specific. So it is difficult when you're dealing with different cultures, even within our country. The other thing about the McGill Pain Questionnaire, for those of you who don't know, It's basically a list of ways you can describe pain. And what is interesting about it is that it also actually closes down a lot of discussion about pain because people can simply point to my pain is hot, it is burning, it is stabbing, it is searing, etc. And it encourages single word descriptions of suffering as opposed to storytelling, as opposed to putting it in the context of that person's entire life. And Joanna, when you say storytelling there, I presume you mean the emotionalization, the psychological aspects of pain, because 
because I can say that my leg is pulsating, it's throbbing, it's stabbing pain. But how the stabbing, throbbing or pulsating transfers into my daily life is I find it harder to work. I find it blah, blah, blah. Or I feel angry. I'm frustrated. I'm tense all the time. I'm uncomfortable. That's a completely different ball game. Surely that is critical to how we understand pain. Exactly. Pain doesn't emerge sort of naturally from physiological processes. Pain is something that emerges within social and cultural environments. And there is a vast amount of scholarship that shows that the context of pain affects how much it hurts. And this was shown quite really conclusively as early as the 1940s. In 1944, a very, very famous physician called Beecher went to Italy, the front lines in Italy, and he talked to hundreds of very, very seriously wounded American soldiers who were on the beachhead waiting to get on the boat to go back home to be cured of very serious injuries. And he made a remarkable discovery, and that was he found that when he asked these men, are you in pain, a huge proportion said, no, I'm not in pain, even though they were missing limbs, they had severe head injuries or chest injuries. And even when Beecher and his team asked these men, well, do you want a shot to take away the pain? They would say, no, I don't need it because I'm not in pain. So he was wondering, why is it that these men said they weren't in pain and refused pain relief? Because then when he went back to the States, he also spoke to people with similar injuries, but injuries that had been the result of car crashes, for example. And 100% of these people said they were in excruciating pain. So why one group was in pain and one group wasn't? And he concluded that the reason was about emotions and expectation. So for those soldiers on the beachhead waiting to be transported back to hospital. Of course, for them, the bad things already happened. They were still alive. All they looked forward to was something better. Whereas, of course, for the traffic accident people, the worst had just happened and there was only bad things in front of them. So this notion that the emotions we feel, the expectations affect how much we feel is really important. And we know this also today with such things as the size of a pill affects how effective it is. If your physician wears a white coat, you actually feel less pain. You know, there's all of these things. If you are in a good relationship, you also actually feel less pain. So all these things affect the way we feel. And physicians today are, are really understanding that if they want to affect rapid recovery, they have to pay attention to the emotional lives of their patients. And if we're all totally honest to ourselves, how we deal with anxiety or stress, how that impacts on maybe other aspects of pain in our lives. Like I have a plastic hip, I cycle everywhere, I walk around, no problem. But if I'm having a particularly aggravating day, I'm a bit stressed out, feeling a bit anxious or just a bit narky. I suddenly start limping or certainly sitting in the chair a little bit uncomfortably and suddenly start feeling my hip. So there's a whole psychological game at play there, isn't there? There really is. The psychological is really important in all of this. I decided that I was going to write a history of pain actually when I was in hospital. I just had a major operation and basically the pain relief that they were giving me was not working. And I still remember my husband came in to visit and I was talking to him and he was 
really sympathetic and you know we were talking through what I'd gone through and how I was feeling and my doctors and my nurses and I was saying how difficult it is to express pain how difficult it is to find a language for pain and he looked at me and he said Joanna you've been talking non-stop about pain for the last hour you can talk about pain the problem is not that people in pain can't communicate their pain the problem is that listeners the witnesses to their pain don't want to hear it don't want to listen to it and it was then that here was someone who was empathizing with me, understood what I was going through. And for that hour, my pain left. Even though five minutes before he arrived, I was really in serious pain. And, and actually, five minutes after he left, I was also in pain. But, you know, he distracted me. His empathy, his love made me forget my pain. And I did not feel it for that hour that he was with me. And this is a common experience. That's very interesting. And it just makes you think we all have friends who go to the dentist and they freak out or they sprain their ankle and they go absolutely mental and they're in raving agony. And you have other friends who've gone through car crashes and they seem to kind of get off quite lightly or in terms of how they describe their pain. So clearly some people are better at dealing with pain or managing their pain or certainly have more perspective in their lives and how that impacts on their pain. I'm interested though in the battle of the sexes because most my female friends would say that they deal better with pain than their husbands or their partners or their boyfriends. And when I look around, whether it's in the office or my broad friends, who are the big moaners? Do you think you can actually say that one gender deals with pain better than the other? Or is that just a ridiculous brain dead sweeping statement? We're going to start the battle of the sexes again, are we? <laughs> I mean, there's good evidence, good scientific evidence that shows that women do complain less about pain. However, that is not because of our physiology or anything like that. It's because we are trained not to, that we are taught that we are supposed to be more stoical. We are supposed to deal with pain better. When young girls are in pain, they are much more likely to be told to act properly. There's lots of evidence to show that. So in other words, we learn how to deal with our pain and how not to show our pain to a much greater degree than boys and men do. Now, one of the very curious things in your book, The Story of Pain, Joanna, is children and pain. You detail how when children have surgery, the medications they get during surgery, whether it's anesthesia or afterwards in terms of pain management systems post-theatre, that they get far less medication than maybe an adult would. That's fascinating. It's frightening, but it's fascinating. Yeah, this is one of the things that really surprised me in researching this book. I wasn't prepared to realize that it wasn't until the 1970s that young infants were even thought to experience severe pain. There's a major shift in the period I look at. 18th century, for example, young infants were regarded as super, super sensitive to what they call obnoxious stimuli. So they were super sensitive. By the 1870s or in the 1870s, what happens is some very influential scientists purport to discover that, in fact, infants do not feel pain. They are not fully wired. So in other words, the pain doesn't actually get to their brain so they register it. So when they cry, when you push a pin into them, it's really just a reflex, just like an animal has a reflex. It's not real pain. So from the 1870s until the 1970s, children, young infants were considered by and large not to experience pain. And indeed, in many hospitals, they had very serious operations, including limb amputations without any form of anesthetic or analgesia. From the 
1970s, that begins to change in very important ways, and infants again become much more sensitive to pain. However, as you rightly say, even today or very recently, in major hospitals in our country, infants are still routinely given much less pain relief than older people. And infants are given much less pain relief, and the very, very elderly are also discriminated against and given much less pain relief. It's frightening, isn't it, to think that? But I suppose it comes down to expectations and our understandings and what we think we deserve or not. And children, I suppose, can't articulate or aren't given the space to articulate their pain in the same way as an adult is. And you can argue that certainly very elderly people are ignored also in society. So a 40-year-old woman screaming about her pain as compared to an 85-year-old woman possibly is treated differently. Yes, they are treated differently. And I think this is a real problem in our society and one that we really need just to talk about a lot more, that we need to take seriously people's complaints of pain. Not everyone feels pain the same way. And it's very, very easy to make assumptions that certain people are not really suffering or that they're exaggerating it. In our society, I think the very elderly is a real issue, but chronic pain generally is an issue in our society. I mean, a large proportion of people feel chronic pain and have it dismissed as, well, they're just too sensitive sensitive or they're exaggerating it. And of course, we also have to admit that patients themselves, many patients, not all, internalize these views and think, oh, maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe I, you know, I just need to pull myself together. And of course, like myself, when I was in hospital, a morphine button that I was pushing that obviously wasn't working. I didn't complain about it. Why? Because I wanted to be a good patient. I didn't want to disturb the nurses and the doctors. So we also internalize these ideas about pain and how we ought to respond and act when we are in pain. And clearly, while we're now medicating for pain and you can go to pain management classes and there's very interesting literature on different approaches to pain, whether it's about mindfulness, whether it's about creative approaches, you know, how you talk through your pain and so on. Do you think we have improved as a society, not just medicating for pain, but in the overall discourse and culture of pain, how we support people in pain? Do you think things have got better? Like you've researched 200 years of pain and the story of pain and you've obviously researched and seen tremendous progress and we have anesthesia and very sophisticated like your morphine pumps and so on. But how much have we improved the patient and the life of a patient or somebody in pain? How well are we supporting them? Well, it's indisputable that with anesthetics and analgesics, things are a lot better than than they were in the past. But I guess it comes back to this idea of sympathy. And actually, I think in terms of sympathy with people in pain, I don't think we have improved. I think there's still a lot of actually fear when faced with a person in pain, fear that somehow pain itself might be contagious. When we see someone in pain, often our first response is revulsion and turning away as opposed to turning towards that person. And Joanna, the other thing is that people are sometimes afraid of the pain or when they look at other people's pain, they look at, well, how is this pain going to affect my life? Yeah, when we face with people in pain, often we do have selfish responses. A loved one in pain represents a huge amount of an emotional investment at the very least, but also other kinds of investment of time and everything. So there is this sort of fear, this revulsion, this turning away from a suffering person that I don't think has improved over time. And if anything, I think it actually may have become worse.
Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Today's music comes from Iceland and Sweden, Sigur Ross and Johan Johansson. And I see the 2014 Man Booker Longlist was revealed earlier in the week. Four US authors, six Britons and two Irish writers. So well done to Joseph O'Neill and Niall Williams who made the longlist which also included the Tasmanian writer Richard Flanagan. I was delighted also to see Karen Joy Fowler make it for her outstanding book, We Are All Beside Ourselves. We had Karen on the show a couple of weeks ago. She's such a lovely lady. Now, I have to say, I was very disappointed that Donna Tart did not make the long list for her incredible read, The Goldfinch. Also, it was quite surprising to see how Martin and me, Will Self, and one of my own heroes, Ian McEwan also ignored. Very, very disappointing. But I suppose taste in books is a bit like the way you like your eggs. Poached, boiled or fried. And on that note, I better just wrap before I say something a little bizarre, offensive and strange. So let's wrap with a big thank you to Owen Holligan and Jess Carley who helped out on research. And the sassy double act, that is Marianne Kennedy and Paddy Dunahoo on sound. We've been talking books. Go easy, go light. And take some advice from American writing legend William Faulkner, who once quipped, given the choice between the experience of pain and nothing, I would choose pain. Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.